For us, this week is full of theological significance and worshipful reflection, including the Lord's Supper. And that is the topic for us today, if you didn't pick up what was being put down on the tables. I know this is the second service, and I was thinking this would have been a great service to have, like, breakfast for the first service and lunch for the second service, you know, like pancakes and then fried chicken at the end of the day. I was like, man, this, we missed the opportunity. But next time, right, there's only so much that we can recall. So next time is great. This is, this is fun. And for us, we are in Luke. We've been studying this since the summer. Today is part 31 of our study in Luke. We're near the end of the book because uh, it ends with Jesus's death and his resurrection and then eventually uh, the, final, the final time with his disciples before he ascends. So today's focus is on the Lord's Supper. And this meal was famously portrayed by the painter Leonardo da Vinci. And it is at this moment that Jesus gathers his 12 disciples in the story. They partook in the Passover meal together. And then Jesus used the imagery of the Passover meal to teach his disciples what it would take to make them eternally covered by the spotless lamb. I'll explain what I'm getting at with that in a moment. So let's read the passage, and then we'll talk through it. So it starts off in Luke chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, you can open to there. 22, starting in verse 7, we see the story here. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, he's talking about Jerusalem, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. That was part of the Passover meal at that time. And now he gets into these elements here. But he says in verse 18, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then Matthew's version of this same moment Matthew adds this, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so the context of the Lord's Supper is the Passover meal, and it is essential for us to understand how the Passover meal worked in order to understand the, the depth of the elements and also how our faith corresponds to the Old Testament, including Genesis, and definitely the work that occurred uh, in Exodus. So Jesus used the significance of the Passover meal and certain elements of that meal to symbolize what he needed to do to make us right with God. So we read that Peter and John, what did they do? Well, they went, they found the upper room and they got the meal ready, right? They would have meticulously looked at the different 
sacrifice of the lambs in the temple to ensure the lamb was roasted. They would have had all the side dishes prepared. They would have had the wine there. And this is all in accordance with the Passover meal with really strict instructions on how to celebrate this ceremony. It reminded them of the Jews and the people's redemption from Egypt in the time of Moses. So the folks, they would eat the meal, and traditionally, after the meal had been eaten, someone, usually the youngest son, was designated to ask this question while everyone's sitting there. They would ask the host, why is this night different from the other nights? And the host of the meal would then recount the Exodus story. In this story here of Luke 22, it is Jesus who's the host, and he begins to recount the story that would have happened. But when he does it, unlike everyone else who would have been celebrating this in their own homes or families or in their groups. In this case, Jesus is using the language and the imagery of the Passover meal in the Old Testament and what occurred in Exodus to then explain who he is, to fulfill all that occurred. Let me explain what that looks like. So he would have told the story. He would have told them how Yahweh remembered his covenant to his people. In Exodus 12, we see this described in that whole section. He would have explained how Yahweh delivered his people from Egyptian slavery, how Yahweh instructed the people to take a lamb without blemish, and then to eat the lamb, and then to put the lamb's blood on the doorpost and above their window. And then Exodus tells us the story how the Spirit of God moved across Egypt, and every home that was covered by the lamb's blood was protected. The Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God, passed over those homes. Hence the phrase Passover. So the Jews celebrated this feast annually to remember this work of God. And when Jesus began to explain this, he gave more depth to it. He would have given, and, and we see traces of this here, ex explanations that God did not just remember his covenant to his people in the ancient past, but in the present, Jesus is establishing a new covenant. What we see from this story is that God did not just deliver his people out of Egyptian slavery in the past, but in the present, Jesus is about to deliver his people out of their sins slavery. And also, God did not just pass over his people who were covered by the spotless lamb's blood in Egypt, but Jesus is ready to offer himself as the divine spotless lamb to atone for mankind's sin. That's why Paul describes him in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He describes him saying, Jesus, our sacrificial lamb, we're our Passover lamb. And so Jesus filled this Jewish ceremony with its fullest meaning. He signified God's deliverance of the greatest kind, not just reflecting back, but what was about to go down from sin and eternal death to forgiveness and eternal life. So that, friends, is the context for the Lord's Supper and what was occurring at the upper room. And that ties our faith back to our uh, historic uh, scripture in its entirety there. We remember the atoning work of Jesus Christ in fulfillment of God's providence. After Adam and Eve sinned, God provided a way for there to be reconciliation with God. And that was through Jesus Christ. And this is the moment that this is all beginning to be uh, inaugurated here. So this morning, we remember the Lord's Supper, and it goes by a few different names. Some people call it the Eucharist. Some groups call it communion, uh, and there is an element of inter interchanging as needed. We're reminded that the communion elements, they are not arbitrary. They remind us instead of God's or of Jesus's broken body and of his blood that was poured out, given as an ultimate fulfillment of the Passover meal. It is wonderful symbolism for us. 
But is it more than just symbolic? I would argue it is. And I want to walk us through a few different reasons on why that is. <clears throat> I believe from Scripture here, we see that the significance of the Lord's Supper is that it is relevant in our walk with the Lord. It is not just an outdated act. We see that it is more than symbolic Christian liturgy, but it carries intrinsic power in its application. And we also see that it's a centerpiece in our worship. It is not just an add-on formality to do because some people like it, right? So let's talk through this. To get us started, I'm reminded of just a fresh view on this because a month ago I had the chance to watch somebody take communion for their first time. It was my son, he accepted Christ about a month ago, and it was very exciting for us. And a few days later, he and I went out to our fire circle and we brought a couple different elements. And so we brought some crackers and some juice and some cups, and he didn't know what we were doing. I told him we're going on an adventure and we're gonna go, uh, I have something I wanna uh, teach him and show him. And so I explained to him what Jesus did on the cross, although he was familiar, but we're re-talking through it. And now I explained, you know, when Jesus, before he did that, he actually gave us these elements to remember what he was going to do. And every time we take these, we can remember that. And so we talked through that and then we prayed and, and, he, and he and I, we, we uh, took communion together. And uh, in that moment, it was, uh, it was incredibly special as um, uh, mainly as, as my son and, and watching uh, the beginning fruits, right, of the Lord. Uh, working in his life. But um, also for us, it serves as sort of a, uh, a, a fresh reminder of why it's significant and why it's so beautiful. And I want to explain a little more on this. Most people, they say kind of in the succinct way about what is communion, we'd say it's a remembrance of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. And I want us to look at, since we have dedicated time right now to talk through it, let's just look at it a little deeper than that. And there's two, there's two elements here. So the first is that it is worship. So communion is, is worship. Professor David Dockery wrote, the highest form of corporate Christian worship is the Lord's Supper. The celebration of the supper directs our attention backward to the work of Christ on the cross and also encourages a forward look to the second coming of Christ. And I agree with this. You see that communion looks backward and it looks forward. And so let's talk through each of these. Backward, it remembers our Savior as God made flesh and the perfect sacrificial lamb. Forward, it directs us to God's promise that one day we will share in the heavenly wedding feast with him. And so as we think about his work on the cross, as we look backward, let's remind ourselves our new life in Christ is utterly dependent on Jesus's life being ripped away from him. When we partake in communion, we remember his body was scourged and that he was hung on a cross with nails through his hands, that he was mocked by those who were watching. And after a few hours, his physical body had been emptied of its blood and his heart ceased to pump and his lungs stopped functioning and he died. He gave up his life so that we should live. And that's what we remember when we take these two elements. Jesus had to die a horrendous death because we are born with sin. Each of us carries an inherent and a mountainous unholiness within us. And this great sin required great payment. 
So our new life in Christ is completely contingent on Jesus' torn flesh and blood-soaked sacrifice on the cross. Colossians 2, which I read last week for us in this service, I'll read it again for us. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 reminds us of, of what occurred in that moment. It says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses or sins. He did this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So communion, it reminds us, as we look backward, to our great eternal need for a Savior and his grace. We remember not what we do for him, but what he has already done for us, right? That's a massive part of it. But we also look forward. We look to the future. There's a hope there. There's an excitement of what is to come. Our hearts are directed forward to Jesus' promise that we spend eternity with him. Matthew 26, 29, in that rendition of the Lord's Supper, words it this way, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So when we are united to Christ in either our physical death here on earth, like our bodies fail us, and if we're in Christ, we go to be with him, or we're still kicking and Jesus returns. So whichever, whichever means in which we're, we are united to Christ, we have a promise of eternal life with Jesus. That promise is good. I love that promise. And we will eat and drink together with him for eternity. So the Lord's Supper points to this consummation with the Lamb at the heavenly marriage supper. Revelation 19 words it this way. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So communion celebrates that our Savior is the triumphant King of kings and our eternal bridegroom. One day, all of us who are in Christ, we will sit at the table with our King. We will remember his sacrifice and his victory as a massive part and component right, of communion in the Lord's Supper and the Eucharist. That's what we can celebrate. Well, secondly, in addition to worship and stirring that heart of worship within us, it is also a bonding experience. We are bonded to Christ and we are bonded to his people when we partake in communion. The same professor I noted a moment ago, Dockery, he said this, the essence of the experience is the worship of the one Lord and fellowship with him and also his people, eating and sharing together, while at the same time conjoining a dynamic remembrance and expectancy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're bonded to Christ and we're bonded to others. Let's talk about being bonded to Christ and what this looks like. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, note the difference. They note those two sides. So verse 16 talks about being bound with Christ, and then 17 is with one another. And I'll read these for us when I get to the second one as well. So the first one here is verse 16. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
First, we see this bonding with Christ. The word participation is often translated fellowship throughout Scripture. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, same book, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, it uses this phrase, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see this fellowship, you see this participation with Christ. Well, it involves our oneness with Christ in his new covenant, particularly in his sacrifice, specifically in his death. And it's expressed this way. This unification is expressed in Romans 6, 5 through 11, like this. Listen, this, is, this might sound wordy, so I hope as I, wor- as I read this, it, uh, it makes sense. We don't have it on the screen. So it says this, For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In this passage in Philippians chapter 3 and several others, there's these references and these descriptions of being bound to Christ in his death or partaking or participating in the in the and sharing in his sufferings right? in this sort of language here well we are reminded of this and and bound to christ even as we take in these elements it, there's there's this work that the lord does in us now there's different ways that people have applied interpreted and even expressed some of these verses across different denominational lines but seeing this clear alignment between Jesus's death and our death in Jesus is there for us. And so the participation with Christ during communion is aptly described in the messages rendering of another verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So the next chapter over, it says this, starting in verse 25, what you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and your actions the death of the master. Okay, so we're bound to Christ, but we're also bound to his people, bound to one another. Listen to the words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. So a moment ago, we were reading verse 16. This is 17. It says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So when we take communion, we unite with one another in the church, right here, uh, within the community, globally, historically, there is this uniting that occurs. Those in Christ are one family. There are no half-brothers or half-sisters in the kingdom of God. There are no social tiers or haves and haves-nots in the kingdom of God. There are no denominational distinctives. There is one family. There is one faith. There is one baptism, all under one God. One of the enemy's tactics in the last 2,000 years has been to take this very practice that should be so 
unifying for us and such a blessing for the church and instead made it one of the pivotal doctrinal distinctives that has caused great quarreling and, and fighting uh, across the globe and, and, and history in, in major ways, leading to variations of schisms and other things in church history. And this should be something that should be exciting for us and, you know, fight about other stuff, but not, not this. So when we take communion, we remember this bond with one another. We remember that we are all in need of the Savior's mercy at the foot of the cross. We recognize there is no place for pride and self-exaltation. We are not better than one another. We're all sitting at tables. Well, not me, but the rest of you are sitting at tables. You're, like, you're not better than other people across the table from you. There is this acknowledgement that you are equal before the throne as we remember Jesus' work on the cross. And when we eat together, we declare a collective testimony that we are participants in this grace that he's offered us. We recognize and we celebrate, and there's this, there's this admission that our identity as his children has been eternally sealed. Therefore, just like Christ, who laid down his life, he loved us sacrificially, laying down his life. So when we take communion, we remember, let us live in the similar way. Let us lay down our lives for one another. Let us love one another. Let us exhibit the fruit of the spirit to one another. And let us, in the words of Hebrews 10, encourage one another until the day of the Lord. So communion is a practice that is reflective it is sacred, it is personal, and it's also collective. And as a church family, we're going to take it. So uh, as we enter into this time of taking communion, I'll have the band.